You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on Genesis called The Patriarchs. Well, as Eric just said, we're going to continue our study in Genesis. We're in chapter 21, and I want to begin reading in verse 9 of chapter 21 as we talk tonight about Ishmael, the firstborn son of Abraham. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin reading through this passage? Genesis chapter 21, beginning in verse 9. It says, but Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. So early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. And he set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and and wandered the desert of Beersheba. And when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. And then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bow shot away. For she thought to herself, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. And God heard the boy's crying. And the angel called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And so she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. And while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we ask, as we always do, Lord, that you would be the source of our insight and understanding, that, Lord, we can read the passage, we can see what the words say, but only your Holy Spirit can animate them in such a way that they become living truths inside of our hearts, that, God, we want to allow our inner man, our, our, our spiritual man, to be shaped and molded, our souls to be conformed to the purpose of your will, the design of your heart that, Lord, we might think your thoughts after you. So grant us this grace, we pray. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Recently, I was reading a a devotional by Chuck Swindoll, and he made what I thought was really kind of an insightful statement. He said, we admire pioneers so long as we can just read about them and not have to finance their journeys. We applaud explorers, but not if it means we have to load up and travel with them. Plans that involve risk prompt worst case scenarios from the lips of most who wait for wait in the wings. And then he said this last part that I thought was so true. He says, as I read through the biblical accounts of his working in the lives of his people, the single thread that ties most of the stories together is the unexpected. 
In so many ways and in so many times, Abraham's life could be described as a series of unexpected, unexpected uh, unrehearsed events that came into him without preparation. I mean, he didn't expect to be childless when he married Sarah. He, he didn't to expect to go through conflicts because of with Lot and eventually having to rescue him and even after the destruction of Sodom. He certainly didn't expect that it would require him at some point to cast off his firstborn son, as we just read, or even later, as we'll see in the next chapter, where he has to offer him up as a sacrifice to God. You see, following God not only leads men into it, the psalmist said, paths of righteousness, but they also lead us sometimes in the valley of the shadow of death. And following God is, is not for the casual, it's not for the conformable, it's not necessarily for the comfortable, but it is designed for the pioneers. And in fact, we might say it's written for the warriors, those who the scriptures tell us are willing to put on the armor of God and stand our ground. And after we've done everything to stand, then he says simply, stand firm. That's why I think my pastor used to always have a saying that, you know, I remember it and repeat it to myself almost daily when he said, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. But they can be bent quite a bit. They can be twisted out of shape. Their nose can be wrung. But the point is, regardless of what they go through, he says, if you're flexible and allowable to God, for God to do what he wants in your life, it'll never be a breaking experience that you'll always come out unbroken. But the problem is we don't want to be flexible when it comes to the living of our life. I mean, what we really like is stability. And we want those things that are foreseeable. We like the things that are predictable. We like things that are planned. We like things that are prepared in advance, that are well-organized, that are orderly, that are regular. And most of us don't want to admit it, but we really do have an attraction for the ordinary. We welcome change as long as it's the same kind of change we've experienced in the past. But if we have a change that's not in the ordinary, the kind of change that challenges us and moves us out of that place of comfort, then we begin to gripe and complain. And I'd like to tell you the wonderful thing about it is as you get older, you get worse. You're less comfortable with those changes, maybe because you could feel them everywhere. We were sitting over here enjoying our pizza. Dave and I were reminiscing about all of our surgeries, you know, and my wife says, isn't this what old people do? <laughs> and I said, it's because they're so common and so frequent and have such a present moment in our lives that we can't help but remember them. But you see, when we feel the real, the dramatic changes that accompanies with it the kind of challenges that really are hard to endure, it's at that point that we begin to realize that we're not as flexible or open to what God wants to do in our life as we say. You see, <clears throat> we see those things as uninvited, unwelcome guests. The term, I think, is called an interloper. I like the word interloper. It's someone who becomes involved in places and situations where they're not wanted and they do not belong. And when it comes to challenges in our life, difficulties in our life, quite honestly, there are many of them that we do not want and they are not welcome and we feel like they shouldn't be there and we often pray that way. God, why are you allowing this to happen? Now, I have to admit that there was kind of a 
chronological arrogance that I suffered from for a long time. I felt like when you're young and inexperienced and you don't know a lot, you don't have a lot to look back on, it's understandable that you get struggle and confused, but I know that as I get older in Christ, well, I used to read Hebrews when he talked about entering into God's rest and having coming out of Eastern mysticism, I kind of pictured in my mind something like nirvana a state of bliss consciousness, that Christians would eventually arise to this place where they just kind of hovered above the chaos of life, but were never really touched by it. And now that I'm older, I've lost a lot of that chronological arrogance. I still have a lot of other kinds of arrogance that I have to deal with, but that one has kind of gone away because I realized that I still find myself unprepared and complaining about the changes that I look at and saying, well, I didn't think I'd have to deal with these kinds of things at this point in my life. And most of us don't realize that, but that is gonna be thematic for us for most of our journey upon this planet. I didn't think I'd have to deal with this. Now, part of it was I never expected to live this long. And the other part is that I was told by Tim LaHaye that Jesus was coming and I didn't have to worry about it. I'm a bit disappointed, but nonetheless, here we are. But you see, uh, uh, we give names to those kind of unwelcome visitors. We call them trials and temptations. God gives them names also. He, he calls them tests of our faith and teaching moments. You know, I used to get offended when people would say, I know this is hard, but this is a teaching moment. And I thought, I want to teach you for a moment. <laughs> I, <just, laughs> I want to touch you with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Anyway, but they, are, they become for us in reality, they do become even defining moments. They become points in which the journey becomes clearer and more focused and even altered many times. That it's a faith position, it's, it's a belief in faith that when things happen in your life that are changing the carefully laid and prepared plans that you've worked on for most of your life and suddenly things change and you're forced into a different path, a different trajectory, that at that moment it is faith that steps back and goes, you know what, I believe that God is doing something good in me right now regardless of how uncomfortable and difficult it feels at this moment. You see, the bigger part of our problem is that in times like these, our perspective is wrong. And it's interesting because you can wake up one morning and look at your life and say, man, I am living a charmed life. And you can wake up the next morning and say, say well, my, man, my life is hard. And what has changed in 24 hours often is not anything that's going on around you. It, it can be just how you begin to look at the situations and circumstances of your life. It's like when you think that you have enough money to get you through the month and you sleep like a baby and then one day you make the mistake of checking your balance. And you realize that just because you have checks doesn't mean you still have money. Just because they haven't called for your credit cards doesn't mean that you can continue spending. And that suddenly changes your mood completely. But in reality, nothing has changed except your point of view, the way you're looking at that moment. Warren Wiersbe so famously said many years ago, he said, sooner or later, every believer discovers that the Christian life is a battleground and not a playground. And I think for Americans, this is more difficult than probably most cultures that have ever lived on the planet. We live in a life of such comfort and ease and convenience. And you, you realize that 
that you haven't experienced the hardships. You, when you travel, as some of us have the opportunity, into third world settings, and you realize that every day is a battle of survival, and then you come home and you're thankful to be back in America because you don't have to work so hard at just getting through the day. And you start saying, you know, really, I, I tend to see my life as being really a kind of a place for frivolity. It's about having fun. It's about enjoyment. And we begin to think that it's almost an entitlement that is owed to us that God should always make sure that the circumstances we're living in or operating in are pleasant. But you find out, in reality, life is a lot like going to Disneyland. You plump down the $100 or whatever it costs now to get in the door, and you're all excited because you want to ride on these rides, and suddenly you realize that the line is two hours long, three hours long. And so you go to the next ride, you feel like you found out it's even longer. <clears throat> and the only ride that isn't require a long endurance on your part is the one that nobody really wants to ride anyway. That the easy things are the things that people don't want, and the hard things are the things that everybody wants. It's at those points that sometimes we, we either become better or we become bitter. We decide that either we're going to change our perspectives or we're going to just simply sink into our cesspool of self-despond. And this is why when we find ourselves in what I call our spaces and places that are so disorienting to us that we begin to have a choice. We realize on one hand that it's like being in war and the fact that it's a chaotic and disorienting and wholly uncomfortable place that God has now put you in. And in a very real sense, you're kind of fighting to get through to the next space. Like a warrior, you begin to realize that there's dangers and threats of all kinds all around you all the time. And that's the reason that we don't want to be warriors. Even warriors don't want to be warriors. And yet, in a metaphorical sense, as followers of Christ, that's exactly what we're called to be. I mean, when Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith... And when he goes on further on to say, put on the whole armor of God, he tells him in his second letter, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And even though he tells us this, he goes on to say to the Corinthians, we do not wage our war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, but on the contrary, they are divine powers to demolish strongholds. But we can easily overlook the fact that God says that you're called to do just that. You're called to demolish strongholds. You're not called to take vision tours around great problems and issues in the world and say, my, somebody should do something about that. No, I'm called to do the things that will lead to their demolition. Usually it's involving prayer and obedience to God in some specific ways. Paul went so far to say there's no discharge from this war. The only discharge that really we'll ever get is, is when we come to the end of our earthly journey. And you can, I think, easily see how this can affect how you feel about yourself and you understand your life. That if you realize that the battle is going to be constant throughout my life, then I stop waiting for the moment when it will stop. 
I stop waiting for nirvana or bliss consciousness or the rest of God where you don't have to deal with things. You begin to find that the rest of God is simply the confidence that you have in the midst of the storm that God is going to get you through the storm and that not only will you survive, but you will actually be victorious in Christ. That suddenly we understand what it means to fight the good fight of faith because it is a fight and it does take faith but it's a good endeavor. It's a good way to live my life. It's a good way to serve. I think this was Abraham's problem. By the time we get to chapter 21, I would simply say that Abraham is comfortable. He thought, I believe, that all the big battles of his life were behind him. I mean, after all, he's over 100 years old now. He's seen it all, and suddenly, he thinks, man, I've got not just a son, but I have two sons. All those fears that he lived with for so many years that he would be childless and someone else would inherit all that he had, had been relieved with that moment, first with Ishmael and now with Isaac. He was a man who had felt that his, 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 his bowl was full, his quiver was overflowing. Everything was coming together beautifully. And we see it even in the way he, he names Ishmael, how ecstatic he is that he actually calls him God hears. And I think we could probably add something to it. God hears finally, finally. I mean, I, I, I want to be able to kind of stick this in your brain for a minute to begin to feel this a little bit in your own self, that what it's like when you've wanted something, maybe something you prayed for and you've waited for for a very long time, and finally God hears your prayer, or I should say, finally we see something that confirms to us and convinces us that he has been hearing my prayer all along. He's just tardy, but we'll overlook that because he's a busy God. But there's this kind of sense of, finally, it's over. I don't know what your experience is. Being, well, I says I do. <laughs> How many times I've said, oh, finally, that's done. And to find out that it's like the night of the living dead, something else pops up in the place of what had been there, and suddenly the battle is on again. So when God tells Abraham that he'll have another son through Sarah, rather than praising God, it's like, as we talked about before, he argues with God. And he says, well, only, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. In other words, that's good enough, God. I, Abraham was willing to settle for something far less than what God had for him because most of us understand that if we settle, maybe we can escape any further struggle. But you know, we're like migratory fish, you know? We're meant to swim upstream against the current. You know, I, I've never, I remember when I was, used to live in Oregon many years ago and I'd go out fishing and I found these places near the river, these ponds where the king salmon would get stuck. The water would dry up around them and they couldn't go upstream and they were just swimming around this pond and, and as I looked at these things, they were soft and mushy and and my first thought was, I wonder if I can catch one of these. And my second thought was, what would I do with it if I did? I'm not growing corn. I mean, they, they were disgusting because they are meant to fight the current. They're meant to go upstream. And many of us don't believe it, but so are we. So are we. 
that we're not meant to just float with a stream watching our favorite television programs the rest of our life. We're meant to be in the struggle. And when we're struggling, we're strong. The muscles don't atrophy. The spiritual muscles don't atrophy. The, the tendons don't become taut and inflexible. They stay strong. And we continue to make a difference. And I'm convinced that the longer I live, the more difference I can make that I don't have to become weakened. We can become like Moses who said that his eye was not dim nor was his strength abated at 120 years. A man who simply died because his job was done, not because he was done, but his his season was over. Yet it is when Isaac is born, Abraham was sure, now finally I can rest, I can retire, I can repose because I have not just one son, but I have two sons. And that is until Sarah again takes offense at Hagar and Ishmael and demands their expulsion. We read it and to our ears it sounds incredibly cruel. I mean, which one of us wouldn't sit back and say, how could a parent do that? How could a father allow that? But one of the things we begin to understand about Abraham is that even when he didn't understand what God was doing, he found himself willing to obey what God was telling him. And we'll see that as we go on to the next chapter. What happens is not only is Ishmael gone, now God even places him in a position where he has to address the deeper question of his life. Maybe Isaac will be gone also. But I think we can really be harsh with Sarah because it's easy to think that it was merely an offended woman. Uh, It was, in fact, God tells him, this is a woman's intuition, which most of us who have been married for any amount of time realize that a, a, a wife's intuition oftentimes is much more insightful than our highest levels of intellect. That, you know, even though I can't understand it and I've done all the math and I can factor it out on a spreadsheet, when my wife says, no, I just don't feel a piece about that, she ends up being right more times than not. And, and one of these days, I'm actually going to listen to her beforehand. What Sarah did was that she saw in that moment something that Abraham didn't see. And when we sit back and say, what did Ishmael do that was so bad? Or why was Sarah so offended? Or is laughing a crime now? It's against the law to laugh? But in this case, it wasn't just ordinary laughter. This was the laughing of contempt. John Gottman is in his Relationship Institute at the University of Washington, spent 35, 40 years now studying how relationships work and why, and why oftentimes they don't. And particularly in marriage, why so many marriages end up in divorce. And they began studying body language. It was fascinating because they found that as they recorded couples just in a private setting except for the camera, that the basic conversation about all sorts of topics that they asked them to discuss, as they recorded their body language and how they responded to each other, that they could tell to, they said, an 85% degree of accuracy whether the marriage would survive or not. And they said the number one thing they said was the determinant of whether marriage will succeed was the degree that contempt for the other entered into the conversation. It was kind of like watching the Speaker of the House last night. 
her contempt <laughs> was rather loud, right? But you know, fortunately, my wife has never rolled her eyes over anything I've ever said. <laughs> because how could she? But how many times in relationships we can begin to become a bit contemptuous of the other person a little bit at a time, but we begin to find ourselves disparaging them and diminishing them and kind of almost ridiculing and mocking them. It's interesting that contempt by definition is the feeling that a person is beneath serious consideration, beneath our full respect. They deserve to be disregarded or to be treated derisively. As one Hebrew scholar explained it, he said, when Isaac, or excuse me, when Ishmael was laughing, his actions recall the name Isaac because the word laugh and Isaac are almost identical in the Hebrew. In fact, that's where we translate uh, Isaac's name as he laughs. But he goes on and says, these related Hebrew words, laughing and Isaac, point to the notion that Ishmael was not merely laughing, rather he was, he quotes, Isaacing. That is, he was behaving as though he were Isaac, the rightful heir of God's promise. See, what might appear first to be Sarah's petty jealousy, competitiveness, and motherly protectiveness was in fact a God-revealed perception, a discernment that as long as Ishmael was around, Isaac was in danger. That Ishmael laughed because he believed he was the one who was entitled to be the firstborn and to receive the inheritance. He was to be the rightful ruler of the family when his father passed on. And I strongly suspect that the contempt that Hagar had for Sarah, and I get the sense it was mutual, had been increasingly and unceasingly sown into the heart of her son Ishmael from his earliest days. It's not hard for me to imagine how Hagar would have coached her son to ingratiate himself to Abraham so that when Abraham died, that Ishmael would become the head of the clan and Sarah's head would be served on a platter. That that would be the day in which she would get her revenge over her mistress. And so even when you viewed it from a cultural perspective of the time, you would have said, well, he's right. I mean, custom of the time was that the oldest son was to become the heir of his father's property. They would divide up the inheritance. If you had two sons, the oldest got two-thirds, the youngest got one-third. If you had four sons, each son would get a part, but the older son would always get twice as much as the other to ensure that he would always be the most powerful, the wealthiest, the most prominent in the household. That was considered to be right. In fact, even later on when God gives Moses the law, even though it's 500 years later after the time of Abraham, it's incorporated as a principle within the Mosaic law. It says in Deuteronomy 21:15, if a man has two wives and loves one but not the other and both bear him sons, but the firstborn son is the wife of the one he does not love, when he wills his properties to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference to his actual firstborn, the son of the wife that he does not love. 
He must acknowledge the son of his unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. That, that son is the first sign of his father's strength. The right of the firstborn belongs to him. Yet earthly rights don't trump heavenly purposes. Repeatedly we find that the firstborn, in fact, was not the one that God chose beginning with Abel and, and then Jacob himself and Joseph and Ephraim. Moses wasn't the firstborn. David wasn't the firstborn. Solomon certainly wasn't the firstborn. He was somewhere in the middle of the pack. Yet all of them were chosen by God to receive the right of the firstborn. And something we need to, as parents, often remember is that parental preferences do not trump our Heavenly Father's purposes that we have a tendency sometimes to prefer one over another, as the Smothers Brothers used to always say, Mama always liked you better. It took me years to realize that was only a joke. I thought it was true because that's what I felt like growing up, only because that's what they said. But Solomon warned in Proverbs 19.21, he said, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. We can have all sorts of plans and ideas, I, I'm embarrassed to say that as a younger man, I used to sit and just dream up scenarios for success. I mean, my idea, creating ideas was like popping popcorn. They were just exploding, and I'd write whole notebooks full of ideas and plans and sketches and organize all these stuff. And it took a while after having failed at them all to realize that it's not what man proposes, it's what God disposes <laughs> and what he chooses to keep. And that's why maybe Jesus simply said in Matthew 19, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. That the race of life is not just simply, as Solomon would tell us in Ecclesiastes, the race is not to the strongest. It's not the one who can get there first that wins. But he says, Solomon says in a rather skeptical way, a cynicism, he says, time and chance happens to them all, which is probably true in, in the world of men. But with God, time and chance are no longer the deciding factors. But God simply says, who I choose will be the one who will become what I want them to become. There's a higher law, in other words, than the Mosaic law that doesn't necessarily make the Mosaic law wrong, but there is a higher law, God's law, that there's a greater right than just having your legal rights. The demanding your rights often leads you away from being right with God. As was the case with Ishmael and his descendants ever after him, even up until the present time. So that when we ask the question now, who are the descendants of Ishmael? The answer is the Arab people. Oh, granted, there have been admixtures of other groups of people, the Edomites and the Ammonites and the Moabites and all, a whole bunch of different ites have been included in that genetic spin. But it's essentially, they're all the sons of Abraham through Ishmael. And in particular, Muhammad, the founder and the father of Islam. You see, the... 
original Muslims in, in, in uh, northern Arabia believe and tell, and based upon their historic genealogies, that they are the direct descendants of Ishmael. And that's very interesting because the followers of Islam still are laughing derisively at the sons of Sarah, claiming that Ishmael was the promised child, not Isaac. And you know what the argument they will use, the Quranic scholars will use? Because we all know that the law requires that the firstborn son has a right of inheritance, and Isaac was not the firstborn, Ishmael was. But it's interesting because as Paul warned in Galatians 5.9 when he said a, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, Hagar's bitterness and resentment has literally infected multiple generations, metastasizing into what Ezekiel 35 referred to as a ancient hostility. This ancient hostility. So it's not surprising that Paul would note in Galatians 4.29, he says, the son born in the ordinary way, which is referring to Ishmael, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. And he says, it is the same now. Nor is it surprising that the Arab world is an, an honor-based culture. What is an honor-based culture? Well, an honor-based culture there's nothing more important than being honored and being viewed as being honorable and being shown respect. And there is therefore no greater offense that you can show to a person than to treat them disrespectfully. As one missionary to Muslims observed, I thought it was fascinating, he says, to say honor is important to Muslims is an understatement. Arab Muslims believe that the West has intentionally humiliated and shamed them throughout history. And one reason young Muslims resort to terrorism is to regain honor. As an Iraqi jihadist phrased it, quote, when the Americans came, they stepped on our heads with their shoes. So what do you expect us to do? Remember when they toppled the statue of Saddam Hussein in the center of Baghdad? And if you watched the men running around in crowds, and do you notice that they were taking their shoes off and hitting the statue with their shoes? Because you see, to touch someone with your shoe is to shame them. Because the lowest point relationally that you can have with the person is your feet. And so when you came into a Middle Eastern home and in Jesus' day, the first thing they would do is have a servant remove your sandals and they would wash your feet and cleanse them. And what they were saying is, I'm humbling myself before you. You are my guest. And when you sit down and you eat with them, you've entered into a covenant of salt, which means basically now the master of that house has essentially displayed a vow of protection and care. This is why Lot was terrified by the idea that men would come and take his guests, these angels, out of his house and abuse them. And he was willing to say, take my daughters, because there was nothing more shameful to them. And that's hard for us to imagine in our cultural context that, that anything could be more shameful. For us, the worst thing that happened was that, that our daughters would be harmed by other people. And yet in their honor-based culture, there was no greater honor than simply 
to honor a guest and no greater act of disrespect than to treat them unkindly, to send them away hungry from your home when you had food that you could feed them. And so this idea that you walked on us with your shoes, with your feet, is the ultimate humiliation and we would rather die protesting that and exerting our honor than to humble ourselves and take what you dish out. We don't live in a, in a, uh, a, a honor-based society. And so it's, it's very abstract to us. But because being honored is the most important thing, humiliation requires vengeance. And, and this is the characteristic of the Arab culture. It's often referred to as the law of the desert. The eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is certainly something that's quoted in the Mosaic law, but the way it's understood in the Arabic world is completely different, not in its content, but in its resolution. The Mosaic law says that the punishment should be equivalent to the crime, essentially, but it also requires that the punishment only be exerted by the community and never by the individual. This is why in the law, God, Moses said, there will be cities of refuge. If a man accidentally kills somebody, he can flee to that city so the, the, the avenger of blood can't kill him, but first he can go to one of these cities and they will protect him until the truth of what happened is found out. If he actually premeditatedly killed him, then he will be executed. He'll be stoned to death. But if it was an accident, then he's free to live there in that city and we will protect him until the high priest dies and then he can go home. And I think the idea is eventually the people who want to kill him would be dead as well. But they understood that world that they were coming out of, the world that they had lived in, was a world where vengeance and blood feuds went on and on and on and it never reached an end so that if you dishonor one of my family and you murder them, then I must murder you to regain our honor and then you have to come back and murder me to regain your honor and it goes on from generation to generation so that even in the Arab world today, or the, the Bedouin world, the desert people, there are blood feuds that are still going on to this very day. If they see someone from a particular family or tribe, it's their duty to try to kill them, the first opportunity they have. <coughs> but the sad thing is what happens is your personal honor becomes your God. Your reputation becomes the idol that you worship. And I remember so clearly the moment when God convicted me of that very kind of idolatry. Remember early in ministry where you began to find that for various reasons, sometimes justified and many times not, that people will accuse you of things and say things about you and not be nice to you, generally speaking. And many people question your motives and your reasons and you find your reputation being tarnished and I remember saying to myself, well, I don't care what you do, but you have no right to besmirch my reputation. It sounded so noble. I remember one day, as I was fuming over something like this, I just heard that whispering voice of God simply saying, Jesus made himself of no reputation. He suffered the most 
shameful death known in the times. And we always have the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross with a loincloth neatly I don't know how they hung it there. It just always fits, you know. I always look for a pair of pants like that. They never work. But, you know, he's kind of neatly covered so that we don't have to look upon his nakedness. And yet the truth of the matter is you were crucified stark naked. And that was part of the humiliation and the shame. There is nothing between you and those who hurt you. And yet today we see it all around the world, the fruit of Hagar's hatred an honor-based vengeance that knows no end. And again, especially towards the seed of Isaac, the Israeli people, the Jewish people, you know, when you ask people about why they would hate Jews or be anti-Semitic, you know, the answers they give are so um, intellectually shallow. I mean, they're more basically slogans than they are arguments. Or they fill them with all sorts of silly conspiratorialness, like the Jews control everything. You just don't know it. <laughs> and it's amazing how that less than 1% of the world's population have such influence and power. And it's interesting because even amongst many Christian Arabs that I've known, I discover that they're more shaped by their Arab culture than they are by Christ's words. And Christ's instruction that said, even if they're all those things you say about them, you're supposed to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He said, you should forgive and, and you will be forgiven. I remember it was several years ago now when Ronnie Simon was doing a series of lectures here and speaking on the Israeli uh, Arabic conflict, particularly from a, uh, an Israeli point of view. And there's a Palestinian professor from one of the local colleges who brought his entire class with him to listen, and then he began to challenge and create arguments and so forth and so on. And I remember after it was over, I walked up to him and introduced myself, and I asked him a question. I said, are you a Christian? And he said, yes. It's from the city of Nazareth. I said, let me ask you this question. Do you love that man that just spoke tonight? And he wouldn't answer me. And I said again, Wait, now you're a Christian. And Jesus said we're supposed to love our enemies. And you have called him your enemy. Do you love him? He dropped his head and walked away. I don't know what the end of it was, but I found out later that he had, was known throughout the school where he teaches or taught at that time for his deep hatred and bitterness for the Israelis. You know, it's, um, it's something that's easy to do. It's easy to see it in someone else, but I think the real importance is if we can begin to extend it out to you and me. Are there people in your life that you carry a deep resentment for? It can be a certain individuals that you know or it can be groups of people that you don't know. It could possibly even be political parties of which you're opposed to. 
One of the things that the writer of Hebrews warned in Hebrews 12, 15, he says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Every time I read that, I just, I, I, I get a check from the God. <laughs> I just think, Lord, I don't want to miss your grace. I need all the grace I can get. I need your grace because I, you know, that's the only fuel in my tank that ever gets me through day to day. I need your grace. But if I allow a resentment, a bitterness, a hatred, an unkindness even to begin to feel justified in my heart, it becomes a, 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 a stepping stone for the enemy into my life that he can begin to exploit. And that's why Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, in the end of the fourth chapter, one of my favorite passages in the whole New Testament, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. We actually, the grieve, literally, the word mean there's, means to, to turn away. It's almost like when you see something that's so unbecoming and un distasteful to you, it's so ugly in the, in, the, in the purest sense that you just want to avert your eyes from it. I, don't, I can't look at that. He's saying essentially the Holy Spirit sees certain things in us and behaviors that come out of us and it just causes the Holy Spirit almost to physically be revolted by what we're doing because on one hand we are the temple of the Holy Ghost and yet we're as guilty as Manasseh putting an idol or, or a, a statue of Baal in the holiest of holies in the temple in Jerusalem and saying that's the real God. He just turns away from it. Just, I, I just don't want to... I, I don't want to have that image locked in my mind that associates you with that behavior, that attitude, that kind of heart. So he says to him, get rid of all bitterness. Get rid of it. Get rid of all rage. Get rid of all your anger. Stop brawling and stop slandering. And he said, along with every form of malice. You know what I think is the most unrecognized evil in the life of Christians, it's that word malice. <laughs> it, it's it's a, a desire to change the score. It's like watching New Orleans play the Rams. You know, everybody wants to rewind that. <laughs> Wait a minute. Can we just rewind that play and, and, and just all together agree that that was wrong? <laughs> And, and I, I just think about there are people who are so angry with that sporting event that they literally hate guys like Roger Goodell, which is, I think, is wrong because I, I hate him for a whole other set of reasons. No, not really. <laughs> I'm kidding. Really, I'm kidding, I think. Honey, don't tell on me. Okay. But he said, rather, we need to focus on being kind being compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ and God forgave you. Be imitators of God. Don't be imitators of Hagar. Don't be imitators of Ishmael. Don't be imitators of Muhammad. A religion that teaches that vengeance is proper when your honor is harmed. It's tough, isn't it? 
<laughs> but at the end of the day, I think when God opened my eyes to the reality that you can never really say you're a follower of Jesus if you're unwilling to forgive. Because you can never say you love anybody until you've had to forgive them. And usually that means multiple times. Because the, really the heart, the essence of true love, the evidence of true love is forgiveness. Which is why when God says he loves us, we know he does because he forgave us. And we can also know that we are forgiven because he loves us. And there's a, an assurance and a peace that comes into our hearts to know that we are people who are forgiven. That your honor can be destroyed. Your reputation can be obliterated. You can be portrayed as being the worst type of person and have all sorts of people saying terrible things about you. And the natural inclination is to rise up inside of you and want to settle the score, to make it right. You no longer, not only have, don't have the power and ability to make it right, but you probably also will never get the opportunity. Because what God wants to do is, have for you to do is to follow Jesus. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and let him lift you up. It was Augustine who had one of his great sayings was he said, Father, deliver me from my need to vindicate myself. Deliver me from my sin of needing to vindicate myself. It's more accurate. Because Christ is our justification. He is our vindication. And if we don't forgive, it's toxic. It's toxic. It's, and I mean that in the most literal, physiological sense. As someone once said, it's not what you eat that kills you. It's what's eating you that will kill you. Father, I pray that you'd help us to, to hear these things. I pray for myself, Lord. I, I speak them because I not only know them, but because I need constantly to be reminded. There is this darkness in every one of us, myself included, that so easily is attracted to dark things like bitterness, resentment, hatred, slander, malice. We, we go there without any effort at all. We slide right into it. If we decide that we're just going to float down the stream of life, then we will become those kind of people. God, I pray you'd help us to realize that there's a battle to be fought. There's a war to be won. There are fortresses that need to be demolished and that we demolish them by our prayers and by our obedience, particularly the command to love even our enemies and to pray for those who use us unfairly. That let us, Lord, no longer live to justify, rationalize, vindicate ourselves. But when we are humbled, Lord, or when we're humiliated, help us just to humble ourselves and leave our cause in your hands. That, Lord, we'll humble ourselves and you promise that in your due time you will lift us up. Grant us that grace, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.